Well, as Ethan said, we're talking about marriage this morning. And so, as so I just prepared, I was thinking I, I probably should start with a little confession. Some stories from my own marriage, maybe some mistakes, maybe you can identify. Uh, when Steph and I were married for one year, it was our one-year anniversary, Steph was pregnant with Emma, she's about five months pregnant, and we were living in Dallas, Texas at the time, and you know, I found this deal to go up to the Wachita Mountains in Arkansas. Look fun. Okay, let's go up there. and We'll stay there for a night or two, I forget. And so anyway, we get up there, meet the guy who kind of rents out the cabin. He says, hey, there's a little river down below. There's a canoe down there. You're free to go down there and use the canoe if you'd like. I thought, great, that, sound, that sounds like fun. You know, let's do that. So the next morning, we kind of get up. We take the trail down, and we hop in the canoe, and we're paddling down the river, and as we're paddling down the river, all of a sudden we hear like this huge commotion in the woods, and there's this huge dog that just comes barreling down the mountain, and then he's splashing through the water, he jumps up into the canoe, and then he just shakes like all this dog water all over us, and Steph was not too happy with all that, and, and we go down the river a little ways longer, and I think, okay, you know, it's time, we gotta, we gotta go back. And now we got to paddle back up the river. And I hadn't really thought that through. And now it's no longer just me and Steph in this nice romantic time. We've got like this 100-pound third wheel in the canoe that I'm trying to like lug that one back up there too. And she's pregnant. So anyway, we finally get back and we have a little lunch there just kind of by the river. And, and I said to her, you know, that trail wasn't too bad. And we can see our cabin. What if we just kind of hiked up the mountain? That'd be kind of fun. We don't, we don't need the trail. She's like, are you sure? I was like, yeah, it'll be fun. Come on. So, okay. So we're going. And I'm from Florida. Now we're living in Dallas, okay? Not a whole lot of, like, elevation change. I'm not used to that. And so we're hiking up, and it be, it's a little steeper than I thought. I mean, we're grabbing stuff. We're just kind of pulling ourselves. She's five months pregnant. We finally make it to the top. We're both exhausted. We're both beat. Drive home the next day, and we're all itchy and everything. We've got rashes all over us. That mountain was covered in poison ivy. Steph was nervous. I mean, first baby, she's like, oh, is this going to be okay? We're, like, covered in calamine lotion for the next few weeks. So there was that. Then next year, uh, we're moving to Washington State, so we're in the process of a big move there. The year after that, uh, Steph was seven months pregnant, almost seven months pregnant with Bree, and I thought, hey, we're living in Seattle, it's not too far from Canada, we should just drive up and check out Vancouver, you know, that'd be fun to get up there and see that, and she's like, yeah, okay, let's do that, so we go up there, and if you've ever been to Vancouver, there's this park there, Stanley Park, and so we're walking around the park, and it's by the water, and it's beautiful, and, and all this, it's great, and there's um, a restaurant at the top, and after a while, we're, we're uh, like a hill in the middle of the park. And so after a while, we're tired. We say, hey, let's get something to eat. And there's a trail that leads up to the restaurant, but there's also this hill. And I'm seeing all these like uber fit people in spandex, like going up and down the hill, like working out and everything. I'm like, hey, we could do that too. And she's like, babe, I'm seven months pregnant. I was like, it's going to be all right, Steph. You can do it. Come on. It'll be fun. And so we start walking up the hill. And again, the hill's a little steeper than it looked from the bottom. And so we're like three quarters of the way up. And one of these like super athletic guys, he comes over with a bottle of water. And he sees my wife struggling. And he hands her a bottle of water. And he's looking at me like, what are you doing? This woman is like <laughs> seven months pregnant. Are you crazy? So we, we make it to the top. As you can tell, I need a little help, okay? 
You know, and if you're like me, guys, like, uh, okay, I need some help. What am I going to do? Look to Scripture, right? And maybe in Scripture, there's got to be an example, some powerful example of this great, like, Jewish marriage or a great Christian marriage. Like, let me go. Let me find one. And so you start searching through, and you see Adam and Eve. They get off to a pretty good start, and it goes downhill kind of quick. Um, there's Abraham and Sarah, not too much. Too long after that, and Abraham, he thought it was a good idea to loan Sarah off as his sister to Pharaoh. And he thought it was such a good idea that he did it again to a king. Okay, I don't think that's quite an example that I want to follow. A little while later with Abraham and and Sarah, uh, Abraham gets the vision to offer Isaac his son. We have no indication. We don't know if he had a conversation with Sarah about it or not. We don't really know. All we know is the next morning, early in the morning, he gets up, takes Isaac up the mountain, you know, God says, hey, you've demonstrated your faithfulness. It's okay, you don't have to do it. And comes back, and we don't really know. There's no conversation, but can you imagine how that conversation would have gone with Sarah? I mean, I just imagine Sarah, like, looking at Abraham saying, you did what? You, we waited 90 years for that boy. Like, what are, you're a crazy old man. What are you thinking? Actually, the only thing we know after that of Sarah is that she moved to Hebron and died there at 127 years, and it says that Abraham then went after her, to mourn after her. So we don't really, you know, not really the greatest um, example there. And then there is Isaac and Rebecca. And, you know, Rebecca, she turned out to be kind of a little sneaky, a little deceiver, right? And she twisted Isaac when he wasn't paying attention with the stew and all this so that the inheritance went to Jacob and not Esau. So that's not really a great example. And then there's Jacob. And Jacob, he was all excited. He marries Leah, but he didn't really want Leah. He wanted Leah's sister, Rachel. So he just marries Rachel too, and he doesn't stop there. There's Bilhah and Silpah. You're looking, well, that's not going to go well for me either. That's not an example to follow. There's uh, Moses and Samora. There's um, David and his wives, and you saw the mess that that was. There's Solomon. That was a disaster. Uh, Jose and Gomer? I don't, I don't think so. Um, anybody want to be married to Jeremiah or Ezekiel? I don't think anyone wants that. So, okay, New Testament. A little more hope there. One of the first couples you meet is uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah. They, they seem like things are pretty good. It probably helps that he couldn't talk for a year, but, you know, things are pretty good there. Uh, Joseph and Mary. They look like they've got a pretty good marriage. That's good. There's Peter and his wife. We don't really know a whole lot about that uh, other than that he had a wife. And same with the apostles. We know they had wives. We don't even know any of their names. But there's that. There's Priscilla and Aquila. They seem pretty good. You know, Priscilla's always mentioned first, indicating she was the more influential, more of the leader in the relationship. And sometimes that kind of messes with us a little bit. Uh, There's Ananias and Sapphira. They were compatible at least, right? They died at the same time. I guess there's something. Uh, You go through the scriptures and you read all these stories and what you see is life is messy. Love is messy. Marriage is messy. Not all the time, of course. I mean, that's what makes it so fun and so exciting and, and so good, but... You know, we like to romanticize marriage, you know, and we read books. Well, only 20% of us read books anymore. 80% of us watch movies. And, you know, so we see these stories of uh, fairy tales, 
You know, if you're of a certain generation, there's Casablanca. If you're more like my generation, it's like Sleepless in Seattle or you've got mail. But we, we, we watch these things and we're like, oh, I want a marriage like that. Where everything just works out. I mean, we've got these ideals, but they're not met. You know, you, you look back at your vows for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, and sickness and in health. But when you're getting married, when you're saying those vows, you don't really think about the worst part. You know, you don't really think about the poverty. You don't really think about the sickness. You think of the fairy tale. We all do. We romanticize it. And that's, that's us. Paul, he's writing about marriage to the church in Asia Minor. And the church in Asia Minor, they don't associate marriage with a fairy tale, okay? That, that would not be their perception of marriage, not in the Roman world. Men in that culture were taught that if you love your wife, you were weak. Yeah, you do not love your wife. That is, that is a sign of weakness. Getting married was simply a duty for procreational purposes. Okay, that's, that's what marriage was about in the Roman world. They had a saying, actually. It said, you visit your wife out of duty, a brothel out of pleasure. Okay, that, that, that was the Roman world. The wife was little more than property in those days. And we could say a whole lot more about Roman marriage and the sexual ethic of the day, but Suffice it to say that when Paul wrote Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, his words were groundbreaking. Okay, his words were groundbreaking. And they're still groundbreaking today. Because we've just kind of flipped and we're on another, we've twisted marriage in another direction. But God knows the power of a healthy marriage. And he knows the example of what that is to a watching world when you have a marriage of, of, of unity that reflects the Godhead. And so it is not just a program. Nobody gets married to be in a program. You get married because you want this relationship to flourish. It really is a mission field. So let's check it out together. I'll start reading Ephesians 5, 22. I'll just start there and just read a little bit. So it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to their husbands. Okay, stop right there. Imagine with me just for a moment, okay, that you are a Gentile man and that you've come to a church gathering and you're hearing this letter being read. Okay, you're hearing this and what are you doing? Man, you're sitting on the edge of your seat. This guy's brilliant. You're nudging your wife. Are you taking notes? This is of the Lord right here. You don't, don't miss this, right? And then the letter continues, right? Pick it up, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Uh-oh. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh." This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. 
So here comes the hard part for the Gentile man, right? He's got a problem at this point because he's already just nudged his wife and he's already said how brilliant this guy was and he's sitting at the edge of his seat and he's amening. You've never seen the man so animated before, so into a message. And now he delivers this and in the Roman world, a Gentile man, he's thinking, loving my wife? That is weak. If, if I go around and people start thinking that I love my wife, that's a sign of weakness. I'll be called a molly. That's what they would have been called in those days, a molly. I would be unfit for service in the Roman Empire. Okay, I cannot join the Roman military if it gets out that I love my wife. I'll be ridiculed. That's how it would have been read then. Today, to the American ear, what happens? Well, you, you read this passage and... You know, it doesn't jive too well with our culture. I mean, you, you look at the biblical vows there, women to submit, men to love. And in our culture, we, well, well, that's kind of outdated. That's a little misogynistic, don't you think? I mean, God seems a little sexist here. I don't, I don't know. Can the Bible really be trusted? I mean, here's what happens. You get, you get a couple together, an engaged couple, a marriage couple, you go through marriage counseling or something like this, and you walk them through this passage Yes, okay, what's the, what's the biblical vow for, for the man to love? What's the biblical vow for the woman to submit? And what happens? You talk about taking the excitement out of the room and letting the air out of the bag. Oh, man, she just kind of shrinks back in her chair a little bit. And Oh, really? I mean, maybe gets defensive, combative. I mean, this doesn't sound, this doesn't sound good. But you have to define terms. You have to define terms. There are two words for submit in the Greek. Okay? One means to follow and obey the rules, okay? where you're just kind of like a robot on autobob. Yep, okay, I'll do that, I'll do that, I'll do that. Whatever you say, I'll do it. That's not the word used here. The other is more of a word picture. Okay? It's the Greek word hupotesitai. All right? And it's a Greek picture, and it evokes... Um, a military image where a troop voluntarily lines up under the authority of another leader. Okay? A troop voluntarily lines up, falls under the command of another authority. And so that's the word that's used here. Well, a woman hears that in today's culture. That doesn't necessarily help either because nobody wants to be married to a, a general who's just going around and barking orders. And that's kind of the context or the image that we sometimes get. But that's the picture that Paul's giving to a, to a Roman world so they could see, okay, this is still strength, all right? For all these men who think, well, this will be a sign of weakness, I'll be ridiculed. He's giving them this word picture so that they can see and they can, okay, no, I can, I can still be respected. This, this can still be a sign of strength. And then Paul defines the word even more. He uses a different word in verse 33 that really gets to what this submit is all about. And it's the word respect, to respect, to revere her husband. So that helps a little bit, right? Okay, respect. I, I can do respect a little better, you know, and that kind of in our culture, we like that word a little bit better. But let's go back to the husband. His biblical vow is to love. And at first glance, we say, great, that's easy. I can love. No big deal there. And all I have to do is love. But he has to love his wife 
the same way that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Well, that's a different kind of love. That's a self-sacrificial love. It means to unconditionally serve. That the husband's vow here is to unconditionally serve his wife, and the wife's vow is to respect her husband. And you explain these terms in a pre-marriage counseling session, all of a sudden, the woman starts sitting up and smiling again, right? Oh, this doesn't sound so bad after all. But I want you to notice, these commands, the command to submit, by the way, verse 21, submit to one another, all right? In verse 22, the word submit is not even there. It's implied for verse 21. It's not in the Greek. It's just implied. It's there. It's just implied from the text. So implied from submitting to one another. Now, hey, wives, specifically, you submit to your husbands. You respect your husbands, okay? You also have the command, love one another. The husband and the wife are both supposed to respect one another. The husband and the wife are both to love each other, okay? You, you get those commands from the rest of Scripture. But here's the thing. God always calls us to do what's harder for us. He always calls us to the hard thing and what the other spouse needs most. The hard thing uh, for the woman is to respect the husband. That's the harder thing. Women are generally pretty good at serving, right? Unconditionally, hey, I want you to be happy. I'm going to do this. They're good at serving. They're good at unconditional loving. They've kind of been wired that way. But respecting can be a little more difficult. They see our faults. They see all our mistakes. They see where we fall short. I mean, God said to Eve in the garden that I'm going to put enmity enmity between you and the man. I'm going to put this distance between you and the man, okay? And he's going to be the leader, and your desire is going to be to rule over him. And so that, that respect is hard, and we see this all over TV, right? I mean, you just look at media today, and guys are pictured as aloof and goofy and out to lunch, and what they really need is they need a smart woman who comes in with all this wisdom and says, this is how it needs to be done, and she saves the day. Right? The educational system in our country is engineered for the female mind. And, you know, we could go on and on. But, but the point is, what does a man need most? For a wife to come along and say, I respect you. I trust your ability to lead this family. And I, I'm excited for the leadership role that God has given you. And, oh, man, a man hears that, feels that, experiences that. Chef's puffs out. There's a little bit of swagger in his step, right? He's feeling good. Man, this woman believes in me. She's with me. This, this is, there's a confidence now. Now, for a man, respect tends to come a little easier. We tend to overlook things a little bit. We don't, don't get so involved in the details. Someone makes a mistake, it's okay. We say, all right, I, I trust you to lead. You're not going to lead perfectly, but it's okay. I trust you. That generally comes easy, easier. But what is hard for us is, see, we, we tend to get selfish, or we just don't think at all. And so to put the wife's needs above our own, that becomes really hard. 
Because, you know, I don't think that, you know, my wife would probably rather just, she's five, seven months pregnant, she'd rather just kind of sit by the ocean in a lawn chair. I think, no, she'd rather scale a mountain. Because that's what I like to do. Right? She, she, hey, she'd like it too. Because that's what I want. And so, we, it's not on purpose, necessarily. It's just, that's just, just kind of how we're wired. And so what happens? Men being a little more selfish, thinking of themselves, how are women portrayed in society? Well, they're objectified. I mean, they're sexualized. You just watch the Super Bowl halftime show, right? And you see that? Well, that's how society works. That's how, that's how it works. And so what does she need most? She needs a man who's going to come home after a long day at work and still, like, do the dishes, do the laundry, make dinner once, a, once in a while, and just look at his wife and say, you know, I, I recognize all the things that you do for our family, and I just want you to know that I appreciate you and I love you and I want to I serve you. I, I want to help make this easier for you. And so he encourages he loves, he serves. What do you need? And in order to do that, one of the things that a man has to do is to know his wife's spiritual gifts. I mean, men, if you don't know the spiritual gift of your wife, you need to study her and you need to know where does she excel? Where is she gifted? Where does she just flourish? Where does she just light up? Where does she make an impact with lost people? And then you set her up and encourage her by creating those opportunities. And when she sees God using her to impact people and live the life that Jill's talking about, like, man, I never even knew. Now I'm really living. There's nothing better than that. You do that. You love her like that. And what does she do? Man, she smiles so big. She squeezes you so tight. And she'll follow you anywhere because she knows the world will never love her that way. Now, you need to know these commands are not conditional, okay? It's not, hey man, love your wife as long as she is lovely. It's not, wife, love your husband as long as he, or respect your husband as long as he is respectable, Okay? They're not conditional commands. They're unconditional. It says, even when she's unlovely, you love her. You serve her. Even when he's not respectable, you respect him. So, and by the way, don't push that too far. I'll say, well, I can, I'll just, he can just run over me like a door. Don't. He's, Jesus, Paul's not dealing with all the exceptions, okay? All the... So don't, don't push it too far. But he says the general rule. You, you respect. This should be your posture, a posture of respect. And by the way, sometimes you've got to respect someone enough to say, this is wrong. Okay? This isn't right. Uh, sometimes you know, we need to see the word picture, or we, or we need to see a picture of this being lived out. And so I want you to see this video of Stuart and Jill Briscoe. It was shown during If Central, and I think they provide just a powerful illustration of what a godly marriage looks like. So I want you to check it out. I'm Jill Briscoe. Very happy to be telling you a little bit about Jesus. I found him when I was 18 at Cambridge. I was not churched. I'm British. Hope you can still hear that. 
I was fortunate enough to be influenced by C.S. Lewis, who was talking about his faith as well as medieval history, which is what he was supposed to be talking about. And after asking a lot of questions and a spell in hospital, where a nurse explained how I too could find Christ, I came to the Lord. And I'm Stuart Briscoe, and I've been married to Jill for over 60 years. She deserves a medal. I think I deserve two medals. <laughs> it's been a wonderful trip that we've had together. And uh, when we met each other, we agreed on a very simple principle. And what we agreed we wanted to do with our lives was to make them count for God, make them count for eternity, and uh, have the great joy of serving the Lord as long as he gave us time together. And so far, it's over 60 years. I was a teacher after Cambridge, and Stuart was on the inspection staff of a large bank. We met in the context of what we did in our spare time, which was reaching the youth, me in my public school, and Stuart in his banking business career. And we found that the mission feels between your own two feet at any given time. And for us, for those years where we did meet and marry, it was how to reach the people around us, in our business, in our school, in our neighborhood. After school, I would go into the pubs and the awful places downtown in the red light district of Liverpool and find all my kids there and began to seek to reach them for Christ. And uh, heard about a big castle in the Lake District that was reaching German youth after the Second World War and European youth. And I took a bunch of my street kids up there, hearing about it, and Stuart was there as well, and that's how we met. <laughs> I was uh, just uh, to attend a youth conference and to help where I could. That's right. We met never dreaming we would, well, I don't think we dreamt, <laughs> we would leave the business world. It, it's uh, amazing that we did, but we did. It's very difficult to encapsulate 70 years of what I've been doing uh, in a couple of minutes. But uh, let me summarize it this way. There are three things that I've been committed to. The first one is preaching the word telling people what the Bible actually says. Secondly, I've, I've committed myself to loving the people. Sometimes our preaching can be rather harsh, it can be rather legalistic, it can be rather dominating, uh, but if it is a, a message that is presented in loving, compassionate concern, then it's going to be different. And then, of course, pray the Spirit will move. The simple fact of the matter is this, in seeking to serve the Lord, we have to recognize that we cannot do it on our own. So what have I been doing? Preaching the word, loving the people, and praying the spirit will move. Take up your cross and follow me. We're very happy to take up our crown, but not yet. And what it means is living a life where you give everything you are in him to him and you obey him and you're willing to go where he tells you to go, do what he tells you to do, say what 
he tells you to say. So if the question is, how, how, how do, you, do you feel that following Jesus has been worthwhile? I would answer, because of the promise that Jesus made. I will make you into the person I created you to be. I will make you in the person I redeemed you to be. I will make you into the person I planned for you to become. And that is what keeps me going. As I keep on following, he keeps on making. And so will it be worth it? Well, of course it'd be worth it. How worth it? I have no idea. Because what is laying up for us in eternity at the end of the following is beyond human comprehension. Yeah. King David was at the one of the lowest points of his life and he was being hunted to be killed by his favorite son, Absalom. He was in a cave and Absalom wanted his throne and his throat. And I would have thought after all he had been through and was in, he would have said, I'm done, get me out of here. And he didn't, he prayed this prayer. Even when I'm old and gray, do not forsake me, O Lord, until I have declared your power to the next generation. For as long as God gave me, give me more time, Lord, because there is nothing like the joy of Jesus when you do what Stuart's just said and give it all, not half of it, not till you retire, all of it to the end of his life. And that might mean, it means suffering physically longer. But it has been a prayer from mine ever since. And the joy of serving Jesus is indescribable. And it isn't just for that sake I do it. What else is there? Nothing I've experienced in life. Wealth, everything else, nothing like it. Are you willing to say, I want more time, Lord, when the time comes? because the next generation need to know Jesus. And before I fall asleep, <laughs> I hope I'll yeah. be able to look back and say, I didn't do this perfectly, but I desired to do it. I desired to live a life of serving him. That's the life that is worth living. Mm, wonderful. So you get a, a marriage that's committed and unified to the mission of Jesus. And what, what a powerful example that is, you know, that they, they set out right when they got married and said, this is, this is what we want our, our marriage to count for. This is what we want it to be about. And that's how a godly man leads. You know, as we talked about last week, that it's not, it's not hey, the submission is not do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. I mean, if you had to do that for your spouse, good night. You can't even do that for yourself very well. It's this is what I want to come out of this marriage. This is what we want. It's an agreed upon thing. That's how you serve, right? That's, how, that's what Jesus did with the church. He didn't say, do, 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 let me create a plan for you. He said, no, here's what we want out of the church for you to go make disciples, to be disciple makers. How do you do that? There's, there's a bit of flexibility there, and there's certain things you must do. You must be baptizing people. You must be teaching people what Jesus said, but... 
In that, there's some flexibility. It's, it's the same way. So your marriage is a mission field. It's a mission field. And you've got uh, all this opportunity. And you don't have an awesome marriage by accident. You know, no, nobody just stumbles into an awesome marriage. It's not a program that you just kind of go through this, this, uh, these steps and then, boom, you got an awesome, mar- uh, an awesome marriage. No, it's a, it's a mission field that you invest in. And when your marriage is strong then the impact that you have out there can become so much stronger because you're this picture of unity, of God and his church. And they look at that. And I I mean, I've been around people who say, I want what you have. And then you can take them to Scripture and, "Ah, well, I don't know if that's why you have that. They might, they even doubt the Scripture, but they say, I want that. Because it's, it's a testimony. And if your marriage is weak, what happens? Uh, You're not as effective. Because you know what's going on at home. And you know the difficulty and you're carrying that burden and there's some guilt there and there's all this and you've got all this other stuff on your mind and it becomes difficult. I want to walk you through quickly uh, just what a typical marriage cycle looks like, okay? This is more proverbial. This is not scripture. um, But it is experienced by a lot, okay? So first stage is the honeymoon stage. Right? You just get married, everything is new, everything is exciting, your spouse can do no wrong, all these little quirks they have, you just typically overlook them. Right? Hey, no big deal. It's great. You're kind of living the fairy tale. Okay? This can go on for as long as about a year. Then the second stage hits, and that's reality. And then you wake up to the fact that, you know what? All these little quirks, you know, you don't screw the lid back on the toothpaste, and that really annoys me. How come he doesn't just put the dishes into the dishwasher and just leaves them in the sink? This is frustrating. And so all these little quirks that you could just kind of look over and glide over in the honeymoon phase, I mean, reality hits, and now it becomes a little frustrating because you realize this husband, this wife, they're not perfect. They've got flaws, and I just can't continue to overlook it because it really starts to bug me. And then the third stage happens, and that's distancing. And, you know, you've spent time at this point saying, hey, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Do this, do this, do this. And you realize, I can't, I can't fix this person. <laughs> you know, I, I, I just can't get them to understand. And you begin to pull away a little bit. It's, it's incrementally. It happens little by little. When you're in the distancing phase, you don't even realize that you're distancing. It just kind of happens where you kind of gradually... Uh, drift apart a little bit and the, the excitement of the honeymoon stage is kind of gone and, and, and you've, wake, you've woken up to reality and now you're separating a little bit. And by the way, couples who uh, live together before they get married, they jump right into this, okay? The honeymoon phase, the reality phase, all that was experienced before you even got married and then what happens, you get married and well, I thought this would make things better. I thought this is what you wanted. I thought this would, be, this would make things good. And it hasn't done any of that. And all the newness and the excitement, and all, it, well, you've already experienced all that. So it doesn't happen. And what happens, you, you almost go immediately into the distancing phase. And that's why these marriages, marriages of people who live together before they get married, get divorced at a 33% higher rate than people who don't live together before they get married. Then stage four hits, crisis. And at this point, you wake up to the fact that you've distanced. Something happens, 
some kind of tension is created. Maybe a child is struggling at school. Uh, maybe there's um, a health issue with someone in the family. Maybe you just wake up one day and you realize it dawns on you. We are not as close as we used to be. Or worse yet, maybe someone else walks by, your heart begins to flutter again, and hey, oh, my, my, my spouse doesn't do this for me. And this, there's kind of a bit of excitement here. But the crisis hits. And so the question becomes, how do you respond to the crisis? Do you pull away? Do you engage? Do you give in to temptation? Do you talk about it? I mean, what do you do? How you respond to the crisis will often determine whether you just live in a marriage that exists, whether your marriage ends in divorce, or whether you have a strong and healthy marriage. Most marriages who end in divorce end in divorce in between years six and eight because of this cycle. Year six and eight is a much higher rate of divorce than any other year. Um, but for those who experience strong, healthy marriages, stage five is recommitment. And this is where you go back to your biblical vows and you say, okay, my responsibility as a husband is to unconditionally serve my wife. I'm going to choose to do that. Whether she's lovely or not, I am choosing to unconditionally serve her. And by the way, Jesus says that to serve her like that means that you're speaking truth to her. It means that you're speaking the scriptures to her. It's the same. You're walking in the scripture that we, or in the spirit that we just saw from last week. And so what do you do? You actually speak the scripture to her. And this is part of and a key element of serving her. And it's encouraging. And it's, hey, here's, here's what I've been learning as I've been reading the scriptures. Let, let, why, why don't we commit to praying for our neighbors this week? Why don't, uh, you know, the Bible says this is how we should handle conflict. Let's, let's just try this as we try to work things out. Um, but the husband takes the lead in the recommitment area for a, for a marriage to return to health most of the time. If the, if the husband doesn't take the lead to say, I'm going to choose to unconditionally serve my spouse, generally, most of the time, the marriage stays in some kind of a distancing kind of place. The wife still must choose to respect him. That's true. But until the husband begins to put her first and unconditionally serve her, the marriage generally stays in some kind of compromised state. But then there's the sixth stage, and that's maturity. And maturity is being able to handle future arguments, future crisis, whatever comes along. Um, you're, you're able to spot signs of distancing and say, okay, we're... We're not as united as we ought to be, and, and you just return to your biblical vows quicker and quicker and quicker. It's not that the storms of life don't hit anymore. It's just now that you're, you're better equipped to deal with them because you've dealt with them in the past. And so you, you've built up this confidence that, hey, we are going to pray together. We're going to work through this together. We're committed to one another. We're, we're strong and united for whatever comes our way. And when you experience a marriage like that, when you've been around people who have marriages like this, what do you say? I want that. Look at how they love one another. Look at how they look at one another. Look at how she respects him. Look at how he loves her. We say, I want that. And we don't see it very often because it's rare in our culture. Now, oftentimes, even in the church, people will struggle with Ephesians 5, through 33. Because they read it and they get caught up with some of the language and they, and they ah, this sounds outdated. I don't know if I like it. You know, they did the same thing when Paul wrote it. 
They said the same thing. Like this, not outdated, but it was, this does not fit. If, if I plug this into my marriage, into this culture, oh my goodness, how people will look at me. If I believe this today, I mean, I'm going to be thought of as like an antique. Come on. But then you ask any wife, do you want a husband who's going to unconditionally serve you? Who's going to put your needs above his own? You want, you want a husband who will love you like that? You ask any man, do you, do you want a wife who will respect you? Who will trust you to lead? Who's excited that you've been given this role in the family? Oh, everybody says yes to that. See, it's what we all want. And God, he knows best how things work. And so he designed it this way. And it's a beautiful picture of how a husband and a wife are to relate to one another. And when it's lived out, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, and it's striking because it's so rare. I ask couples, whenever I do pre-marriage counseling, can you think of a marriage that you look at and you think, man, they, get, they have a really strong marriage, I want a marriage like that. And I will tell you, almost every time, they're scrambling and they will come up with one, maybe two. Marriages that they look at and say, I want that. Because it's rare. Why? Because people don't do this. They get caught up in a distancing phase, crisis hits, they don't know how to respond. And instead of responding biblically and pushing in together and saying, I'm going to choose to serve you through this, I'm going to choose to respect you through this, we pull away, say, you just live it how you want to live it. I'll live it how I want to live it. But you get a mission field a marriage, live like this, and then you get that. You get Stuart and Jill Briscoe. And people look at that and say, I want that. I want that. That's what we get to model. That's what we get to model to the world. In a world that has messed up marriage in so many ways. And by the way, it always has. Okay, From the very beginning, you go back to Adam and Eve, they messed up marriage. We live in a humanity that messes up marriage. And so when we see a powerful one, man, we want that. So let's be that example. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us a design, a plan for how a godly marriage ought to work. But God, oftentimes as men, I know I confess that I look through it with a selfish lens and I think about what I want. And don't always put my wife first. It's got to help me to not do that. Help all of us as men to not, not do that. Help us to unconditionally serve our wives in the same way that you've served your church. you got to pray for all the wives out there that they, they would respect their husbands, that they would let them know that they believe in him, that they're praying for him, that they, they want him to lead well and they trust that he will. Uh, that God, we're, this is not going to happen by accident. We need your power, uh, power of your Holy Spirit to live it well. God, this week as we live our marriage as well, may we invite um, friends to come Come next week and hear how your church connects to the home. How it's not, uh, the church is not a religious institution that we come to. It's a called out, sent people of God. Help us to live that well. In Jesus' name, amen.